Kitco News special coverage of the 31st Global Metals and Mining Conference is brought to you by Gold Terra. Hello and welcome to Kitco News at the BMO Metals and Mining Conference with me, Paul Harris. Today I'm joined by Peter Maroney, Executive Chair of Yamana Gold. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, how are you? I am very well. We've got a lot to talk about today, Peter. Um, let's start with uh, 2021 Yamana Gold performance. You produced a, a million ounces, a record level. You ended on a real high record quarter. Uh, you must be very pleased with that. We are delighted with the performance across all of our mines. We're delighted with the production. We're delighted that our costs came in where they did, as you are aware. Every ounce of gold was produced at $1,030 for the year. But in the fourth quarter alone, with that record production of over two, just about 240,000 gold equivalent ounces, we produced every ounce of gold at about $960 per ounce. And that's quite impressive. But to me, Paul, the most impressive part is that's the headline. But I think we, have, we need to look below the headline. The most impressive part is our increase in proven and probable reserves above what we depleted. And more than that, it's that we didn't sacrifice our resources to do that. Our measured and indicated resources went up and our inferred resources stayed flat to, to going up. As you are aware, proven and probable reserves is backward looking. This is what we have as of the end of a year. And we're normally getting, touching into our measured and indicated and our inferred resources that upgrade to proven and probable reserves. That implies then that we have less proven and measured and indicated and inferred resources. But if you can increase that inventory, that means your future is secured because what you did the year before that is historical can be prospective because you now have that inventory of inferred and measured and indicated that can convert into proven and probable into the future. Excellent. Well, that all, all deals with the sort of long-term sustainability of the business. And we're, we're here at an investment conference, so investors really sort of care about that. But um, one thing we've seen, the gold price has been sort of relatively strong for the past year, two years. But uh, gold equity share prices have been sort of lagging out. Why do you think that is? And what will it take to, for that to, for gold equities to get up to where the, uh, the gold price is? That's a really good question. And, and, and I don't know that I have the definitive answer. I'm sure that people will be writing about this at some point into the future. But I would say that at the end of the day, gold is gold and equities, while they are a proxy for gold, they're still equities. And so if the broader market is performing a certain way, then the gold equities will perform. I'd say that the broader market has probably been the greatest impediment to gold equities performing better because everyone was invested in that broader market and no one was paying attention to this comparatively small industry. I don't know today what the market capitalization of our entire industry is, but I have to imagine it's in the range of $300 billion. Well, that's a fraction of the size of a, one of these behemoth uh, technology companies. So it seems to me that it's a small industry we have to attract the attention of the broader investment community, but because it's small, it takes a little bit of time to attract that, in, that attention. Thank you, Peter. With uh, a number of companies arguably trading below what their real value is, is, is it a, or should it be a fertile time for M&A activity? I mean, we've seen a few transactions last year. Should there be more coming down the pipeline? So, so another really good question. And, and M&A is very broad. The spectrum of what is M&A is very broad. At the one end is buying something, a company that buys another company. At the other end of the spectrum, or somewhere in the spectrum, is a business combination of two companies, perhaps describing that as a merger of equals or, or something akin to that. And then at the, the furthest end of the spectrum is where one company buys another company outright, mostly a larger company that buys a, a smaller company. And I'd say that the grounds are fertile for uh, combinations 
uh, I'm not convinced that they're fertile for acquisitions. And what I mean by that is single asset companies, opportunities such as that. I'd love to believe that they're there. But the reality is that while they may make a good investment opportunity, when you invest, you invest based on many things, including the optionality. Is gold price going higher? Might they discover, make a, a, a discovery of, of more ounces, higher grade uh, in the ground? When you buy something, you bought it for life and you have to buy it on the basis of what it is at that time. And you have to buy it at its fair value, but you own it forever. And so you have to make sure that whatever value you can deliver on top of what you paid for it goes to, goes to your shareholders. And presently, we just don't see that there's a lot out there that would be interesting to us on the acquisition side. On the business combination side, I can see many things that would be very interesting. Okay, well, let's dig into that a little bit more, Peter. The, the, the zeitgeist in the sector, you know, a few years ago was uh, uh, zero premium mergers, mergers of equals, that kind of thing. But recent transactions, we've seen premiums starting to come into things again. So, it, again, is this becoming, uh, we're entering into a potentially very productive time for the sector and, and investors? And to what extent is this necessary to have that additional consolidation? So, Decades ago, uh, someone said to me that uh, business combinations, uh, uh, transactions of that type are like living organisms, they're like individuals. I don't know if the analogy is a good one, but everything is unique. And so I think we have to look at it from the lens that we can't paint the, with the same brush. Every canvas has to be painted differently, perhaps if I can put it that way. And so it seems to me then that we can't just say that every transaction has to be done at zero premium. There will be transactions where that could make sense, but there will be other transactions where it doesn't make sense at all. And in the end, where I come down on this is that we have to pay fair value. If we're buying something, we have to pay fair value. If we're being bought, then someone has to pay fair value for us. That fair value is whatever two arms length parties negotiate to be the case. And so it seems to me that it's the wrong thing to do to say that every transaction has to be done at zero premium because there will be transactions, and often there are many transactions, where a premium must be paid because it will reflect the fair value of what you're buying. Okay, uh, Yamana Gold's done various transactions over the years, and we'll talk about some of those specifically in a moment, but uh, your current market cap is about five billion. Um, do you see yourselves more as a potential acquirer or a potential acquiree at the moment? Well, Paul, we, we have um, a million ounces of production coming from five mines. We have a sixth mine on the horizon with our Wazamak mine in northern Quebec. With those six mines, we get to a production platform of about 1.2 to 1.25 million ounces within this outlook period that we have of the next decade. So let's say within the next five to 10 years, we get to that point. More recently, we've indicated that we believe that our mines, those same six assets, can generate somewhere between 1.25 million and 1.5 million ounces. And then there's our Mara project. Mara is an asset with our 56%, we would, the attributable copper production to us is 260 million pounds of copper. Well, that, that in gold terms is about 590 to 600,000 ounces of gold. So our existing portfolio supports not a million ounces, but between a million and two million ounces. And so the way to, that I look at it then is, is I, I'm inclined to look at business combinations in a, from a friendly perspective. We can either go as a purchaser we can go as a business combination where we merge with someone that is comparable to us, or we can get bought. We're, we're open to all of the possibilities that deliver value for shareholders. But at the end of the day, what I hope our shareholders will recognize, and what a potential buyer or participant in the deal will understand, is that my personal view is that our share price today is not reflecting fair value on the basis of what I've just described 
as that portfolio. Okay. Um, Yamana has the, the profile of Yamana has changed considerably over over the years, and you've you've done some really sort of standout deals. You you know you bought half of Canadian Malartic, and you've recently bought uh, Wasamak. You did the deal for uh, related to Mara, but. Enables you to get the processing facilities there. Um, you've divested assets. You haven't been afraid to let things go, including some significant assets like Chapala, which was a landmark asset in the early life of Imana, and and the dividend policy. So um, and an all-in sustaining cost of nine hundred dollars per ounce. Um, Imana's a very attractive company today. I certainly think so. Uh, I certainly think, as a shareholder, as a founder of this company, as an executive and board member in this company that we should certainly be attracting more attention in the marketplace and our share price should be higher than it is. If an industry participant would like to look at our company, we're very happy for that industry participant to look, but they should recognize what is its fair value. You mentioned several of, the, of those transactions. In 2014, we bought Canadian Malarkey. We paid a premium. I think it's fair for shareholders to ask the question, did you overpay because of the premium that you, that you paid? We felt at the time that we paid fair value. It is now incumbent on us as a buyer to say, here's the value we can create on top of what we pay, which is that fair value. Let's look at what we've done. We've taken 47,000 tons of throughput per day to an excess of 56,000 tons of throughput. We've taken the production platform as a result to a higher production platform. We've decreased costs. We've in, in, generated impressive cash flows that are punched well above the pay grade, uh, of the weight class of that $1.5 billion that we paid for the 50% of Canadian Malartic. And now we have more than 15 million ounces, that's 15 million ounces in inventory in the ground, in, in the underground, that will support a mine plan of at least 545,000 ounces per year until somewhere into the 2040s and beyond. Well, I think uh, your recent releases, you're talk, looking at a, a mine life to 2039 at between 500 and 600,000 ounces a year. And um, when we spoke recently, you, you said there's potential there, you think there's potential there for, for Canadian Malarctic produce one million ounces a year. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. It's an internal view that we have. Now, to be fair, we have not talked about how we get there other than in broad brush. We've not said what the capex is expected to be, although we have an internal view on what that capex is expected to be, and it would be substantially lower than what we're paying for the underground development presently. But the plant capacity is really the key here. The plant capacity is in excess of 56,000 tons per day. The underground that gets us that 500 to 600,000 ounces that you mentioned is only 20,000 tons per day. So we have all that excess plant capacity. So is it beyond the realm of possibilities as these ore bodies extend to the east and get larger? Is it beyond the realm of possibilities that within a horizon of, let's say, within the next eight to 10 years, we might be looking at a second shaft that will allow us to increase that throughput above that 20,000 tons per day? And that's where we think the possibility is. And Quebec is going to be a, a central element of Yamana going forward. In addition to Canadian Malati, you've got the, the Wasamak mine that you bought uh, last year. How's that? You, you recently announced that uh, you've got the permitting, you're doing the permitting for the bulk sampling, which enables you to get underground and have a really, really good look around, as well as putting in some of that underground development. How, how is Wasamak advancing? Very, very well. We're in the permitting process. We've already identified what we intend to do from a drilling perspective. We've, we're carrying 1.9 million ounces, almost 2 million ounces in inventory as proven and probable reserves that supports a mine plan that is an average of just about 170,000 ounces per year for roughly 10, 11 years. 
But that was the base case because we're making new discoveries. We know that the main oral body extends at depth and we've made a parallel discovery uh, of a new shear zone. And as we continue to advance the exploration of that and then development, it does look to us as, that, as though the inventory of ounces will continue to increase. So with the same plant that we're currently, that is currently going to be in development, we should be able to get a production platform that is substantially higher than that 170,000 ounces per year. Let me explain that a little bit. In the first several years, the first three years, we're getting a production of 200,000 ounces per year. So what we're doing is we're saying, let's extend that for the full initially 10 years at 200,000 ounces per year rather than 170. And we think that we'll be able to get more than that. So our current plan for Wazamak is 200,000 ounces per year at below $850 all in sustaining costs for at least 15 years. And we believe that the inventory that is there in proven and probable reserves, in resources, and these new exploration discoveries will get us there. Okay, let's talk Argentina. Um, Argentina is becoming or has become the, you know, the go-to place for exploration for, for gold, copper gold, gold copper. Um, Yamana has been there for a number of years. And, and just today we saw a big, another big transaction announced, BHP investing $100 million into the Philo, Philo mining. Um, you've been there for a long period of time with the, you, you developed Cerro Moro, you've had other exploration projects there. And uh, more recently you're putting together the, the Mara project. Uh, why do you think Argentina is becoming so attractive today? Oh boy, what a question. It, it's, it's painful to know that you're right, but it's not showing itself. And so for years, as you are aware, I've been saying that Argentina is a better place for mining investment than people assume. Um, and there's a lag often between what you see on the ground and what the, the general population worldwide is, is, is perceiving. I'm really happy to see that that's now beginning to manifest itself. Argentina is big elephant country, and it's a country that had to come to grips with how does it want its economy to grow? Uh, how does it want to get itself out of this debt situation that it is in? And it now recognizes that because of that big elephant country in opportunities for mining, it should allow the exploitation of those opportunities. Argentina has always said as a country and provinces in Argentina that they want this to be done responsibly. We've been there since 2006. We've developed two mines. We have several projects, one mine already in production and several other projects, including our Mara project. And so we certainly have the ability to demonstrate that we can do things responsibly. And that's what I think the country is looking for. And that's what has been happening in the country. It has been demonstrating, at least in certain provinces, that it is supportive of mining. Now, if you look at a province like San Juan province, they've been supportive of mining for at least a couple of decades. And you see that in its GDP, in the wealth of its citizenry, in, in, in the growth that has occurred in the province. And there are other provinces that are now saying, we should be able to capture some of that as well. And what I find very, very interesting today is that at a presidential level, there's support for mining, but even more interestingly, because mining is provincial in Argentina, there's a natural national regime, but there's also uh, a, a mining is, is, is regulated provincially. The four largest provinces for mining, Catamarca, San Juan, um, and, and Santa Cruz included, so where we operate and where we have operated, those provinces are saying we are forming an alignment that allows us to be able to promote in-country the development of mining. Well, one of the key criticisms of Argentina in general by people has been the, uh, the taxation, things to do with exchange rate controls, uh, uh, repatriation taxes, things of that nature. Is the 
local government, the sort of provincial governments and the national governments, are they um, sort of streamlining that or, or providing greater clarity on that, perhaps tax stability agreements, things of that nature? How, how is the sort of the fiscal arrangements? You know, I prefer not to be critical uh, of a country. You made reference to one of the criticisms. I think every country has its own attendant issues. And, and, and I prefer to be sanguine when we look at all countries in which we do operate and could be operating. There are periods of, of, of peaks and valleys. And so there are periods where a country goes into a, a, a place where it has to do something different from a taxation point of view, from a fiscal point of view. Sometimes it's understandable why they have to do that, at least geopolitically, although even from a corporate perspective, we may not agree. What I think is the good news in Argentina today is that they recognize the errors of the past, that it does not encourage investment if there's ambiguity, if there's uncertainty, if they create uncertainty by having a fiscal regime that is one thing that changes to something different. And so it seems to me that given that recognition, the country is now saying, let's create some stability for mining and we're going to say these are the things that one has to do, the responsibility side of companies, and this is what we as governments uh, will, will, will require by way of taxation and otherwise. So it's become considerably more stable. And more than more stable, it's also becoming very clear to us that there's strong support for the encouragement of mining by reducing taxes and royalties, at least during payback periods. Okay. So you your main uh, key development project you have in Argentina is the Mara project. Uh, what's the plan there? How is that advancing? Well, Mara is going through a feasibility study this year. As you are aware, it is a, a, a comparatively simplified feasibility study because the plant's already built. That was the idea to the integration of the Alumbrera infrastructure with our Agorica, the creeks, the, the combined Mara project, this new partnership that owns, that owns Mara. Um, so the feasibility study this year, and we start the permitting process this year, but, but nothing is black and white. So when we say start the permitting process this year, that's the formal permitting process. We're already in consultation with governmental authorities to say, these are the segments, these are the things we intend to introduce. And in, you know, Catamarca province is a, is a small province and we don't want to overwhelm them with this very, very big project. And so we're, we're incrementally saying, these are the things that we're going to be introducing. How do you feel about that? And then going through dialogue. Okay, let's all coming to our end of our conversation here today, Peter. Let's sum up uh, or round up with, you know, what are the sort of key goals? Or what are the key things you want to achieve this year? Where do you want the Yamana goal to be at the end of the year? So demonstrate again another year where we meet our production guidance, where we meet our cost guidance, likely coming in better on production, similar to what we did last year, and better on costs as well. I'd like to advance Mara to a point where we demonstrate its value. It's not reflected in our share price. So is that a strategic transaction that occurs or do we advance it through the, 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 um, the uh, process of, of development? I'd like to also continue to demonstrate that we can increase proven and probable reserves and resources. And I think this is an excellent year. Perhaps the next two years or, or beyond will be excellent years. Because what we see is because of that inventory of resources, we can upgrade much of that resource to proven improbable this year at our four wholly owned mines. And this year and next year will be two very interesting years because uh, the vast majority, perhaps all of the ounces that are in inventory as resources at our underground project, the Odyssey project in Malartic, will convert to proven improbable. Those are some of the things we'd like to see this year. 
It sounds like there's going to be a lot of news out of Yamana this year. Peter Maroney, Executive Chair, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Kitco News special coverage of the 31st Global Metals and Mining Conference is brought to you by Gold Terra.